0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes the information, statements, comments, views, and opinions throughout in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I am joining, joined by the incomparable Mitchell Moose, Managing Editor at Crypto Briefing. Mitchell, it's uh, excellent to have you on. Pleasure to be here, Joshua. So I th- I thought this was really timely and kind of a great way to s- start, given all the the wildfires that are happening, you know, out, out in California and in Oregon, out West. You were a wildland firefighter in Oregon. So I'd love to hear what that experience <laughs> was like and, and what you're I know, not crypto related, but kind of would love to hear that and, 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 and you know hear the story there a little bit. Uh, it's
1: funny. I never thought uh, someone would dig that up on me. But yeah. I used well, to, be... to be.
0: fair, it's in your Twitter bio and on your LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's more of like a conversation starter, I guess. I, I, it was a it was a summer gig when I was in college. There was an opportunity for me to do an internship for like an accounting company or a tech company, and I saw what all my peers were doing, and it seemed fucking boring. Like it just seemed horrible. Um, it was just doing like entry level work at a big corporation, and that didn't really appeal to me. So in the same vein of like crypto and just kind of carving out something cool out of out of the ordinary. I just decided that I was going to join a wildland firefighting crew and do that for the summers while I was in school.
0: And, and what was that like? I think I read on on LinkedIn that you went, you know, like you were like camping in the woods for weeks and like what 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 was it actually like? <laughs> it's
1: not like structural firefighting at all. So, usually you go out on 2 to 3 week stints. And you have 14 to 21 days on, so you're out in some remote location fighting a fire, and then you get two days off, and you repeat that all through the fire season. The fire season's typically um, four or five months. So it's, you're, you're just kind of out there, and there's usually this big camp like base camp, where you'll have anywhere from a few dozen to a thousand or more people set up there, and you have like logistics, food provision, all the equipment set up there, and then you kind of have that as a, as the center of the hub. And on your spokes, you have all these little crews of 20 to 40 people out surrounding the fire on the perimeter. And you're actually trying to build out a a containment zone and kind of carve out any sort of fuel that's in the way of the fire to prevent it from spreading any further. So you're basically trying to fence it in um, by removing any fuel that could possibly
0: burn in, in the fire's path. And so I was reading yesterday that There's a single fire in California now that is surpassed a million acres, which I don't remember if I read it It was the biggest ever, but, but close to it, like how, how does this actually end? I mean, you know, having had an experience as a wildland firefighter, like what, what brings all of these, you know, fires out West to an end? Like, it seems like it's just never going to end.
1: Um, I mean, fires have been part of the natural ecosystem in, in the U S for, I mean, as long as, as long as there've been plants here. (laughs) uh it's it's a normal ecological process like wildland fire fires are very important for many plants and animals in especially like the pacific northwest in california like ponderosa pine and several kinds of insects they depend on fires cyclically coming through an area to reproduce so there are many fire dependent plants and animals however the intensity of fires is what's been problematic year after year fires have been getting more and more intense and a lot of this has to do with both global warming. But the bigger issue is actually management of these forests. Because of how much we're changing our environments, like rerouting rivers and cutting down a lot of forests, the health of these forests is is declining, leading to a buildup in either diseased trees or just um, undergrowth like debris. And that's leading to more intense fires that aren't, aren't healthy fires. They'll burn through a forest and they'll just incinerate everything versus like burning out all this debris that's been accumulating on the forest floor. So paradoxically, part of the problem can be too aggressively fighting fires, meaning that they'll just keep building up debris until a huge fire goes through and just incinerates everything and and kind of scars the environment for a few decades.
0: Well, I appreciate I appreciate the insight and I think it's uh you know about time to ho- we hop into uh into crypto and learn about Mitchell's uh, crypto experience. So, you know, what what were the other roles that you had? you know after after your, your your summer experience as a firefighter uh, before crypto what initially attracted you to the space and when did you decide it was it was right to jump into crypto full time well i really liked computer
1: hardware so i had built quite a few computers prior to like just in college like during that same time where i was firefighting and at first i thought bitcoin seemed like kind of a scam it was this internet money and i didn't have a whole lot of money to invest so it didn't seem like it made sense to pay close attention to it that said, when I looked at the numbers for cryptocurrency mining in early 2017, you're talking about break even in a few months. So it would have been ludicrous for me not to take advantage of that. And given my skills at the time, I was just like, this is a great way to make some money on the side. And I just threw everything I had at it. Like, if you're breaking even in three months, I put as much money as I could, pos- I possibly could into cryptocurrency mining. And it, that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole of getting involved in this whole industry.
0: And so you started a firm called CoinGlomerate. I really like the name, by the way, uh, which was focused on computational arbitrage. Yeah. Can you uh, explain to us what that means?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's actually... So my first startup, once this mining thing started gaining a lot of momentum, like people were, I was writing about it. People were asking me about it all the time because it was, that was kind of a hot thing, especially as the 2017 ICO boom started to kick off. Everyone wanted wanted to pick my brains about cryptocurrency. So computational arbitrage, this was a big problem, especially when all these altcoins were popping up, that there was a lot of inefficiency in the markets between these different um, different mining algorithms. So the algorithm that Bitcoin uses, SHA-256, is much different than what, what Litecoin uses, which is uh, scripts. So each of these coins have their own distinct algorithm. But for some of these algorithms, they use the same hardware. So, for example, Ethereum and Zcash, although they use different mining algorithms, the same types of hardware are able to mine on both those cryptocurrencies. So you can use GPUs for both of them. What computational arbitrage is, is by analyzing how much income you'd be, how much revenue you'd be making for each hash of this particular algorithm using the same piece of equipment across many different coins, you can maximize between all of these different coins how much revenue you're bringing in. So there is some friction involved with that. Like there's a lot of, um, when you're switching mining pools and you're going from algorithm to algorithm, there is a cost involved with that. And of course, there's friction with trading that into an exchange. So the software we were building was trying to do that programmatically. Hook it into an exchange. You run just this piece of software. And you, and without being part of a pool, you would just profit switch between the most lucrative algorithms. And then you would change that out automatically onto an exchange, like a set exchange. So this was more for like larger either pools or farms. And then we'd take a small cut of that, like any of the, uh, like the gross revenue you would make from that algorithm, you'd take like we'd take like half a percent or one percent, depending on the terms of that agreement.
0: And so, what 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 are the biggest challenges associated with doing something like that? I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, you know, for example, you know, you know, you know, having to transact on exchanges. But to me, like so many questions come to mind, right? Like how how long does it take you to switch between mining different you know, cryptocurrencies, what is the period there? Um, you know, it obviously depends on what the liquidity is of, of these, these, uh, you know, particular assets. I think it probably also depends on, you know, what, what is your, you know, you know, time horizon, like if you're actually looking to liquidate right away versus, you know, holding more long term, like what, what are the kinds of questions that you were asking the problems that you were seeing?
1: Man, a liquidity one's a big one, because it is a pain in the ass when, when you're mining some of these obscure assets, and especially if your sensitivity is set too high, you might get like 10 cents worth of cryptocurrency and just out of trading fees and transferring and everything else after that, like there's no margin left there for you. So a lot of it has to do with tuning the, the algorithm to only switch if it can identify that the liquidity is sufficient and a couple other preconditions are met. Um, so another complicated part of actually assessing how much revenue can be made for each of these algorithms is you need to set up some infrastructure through CoinGlomerate to monitor each of these chains. So we were monitoring and mining on like two or three dozen different assets to make sure that we were getting raw data from each of these sources to identify like how much hash is actually coming on to this particular chain and like setting up nodes for each of these so that we can actually get that data directly and in a timely manner so we can make these calculations. So I think that that was probably the most complicated part of it was the liquidity component of it through the exchange and then running these full nodes and monitoring each of these blockchains individually.
0: And so what was the initial, you know, thing that sparked your interest in mining in particular? Uh, and like what what aspects of mining, you know, intrigued you the most? Is, is, it, is it is it something that you're still following now? Like, are you looking at, uh, you know, different trends in the mining, you know, community? I don't know if you saw today, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but Galaxy Digital... Um, announced that you know with their four hundred million dollar book, they're going to be helping to fund mining operations, and we saw DCG, uh, you know, roll out Foundry, which they put I think a hundred or one hundred fifty million dollars behind, which you know among other things is doing, uh, you know, minor financing. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on you know current developments in the market as well. Well, mining
1: is just a good way to get long term exposure to uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general, so it makes sense that these firms want to get access to like exposure to these mining operations. The, the thing to be cautious about is, the, is that mining is almost a perfectly competitive industry. So it doesn't, it's, it has, for Bitcoin mining, it's less so, but the barriers to entry tend to be low if you're looking at it strictly from a hash provider side of things, not from the manufacturing side. And you're gonna have a lot of competition. It's basically race to lower cost by as much as possible. There's very little you can do on the revenue side to increase how much you can make. So it is a game about cost cutting. So if you're trying to go for a long exposure into Bitcoin, it's the best way to go about it for now. But if you're trying to get into mining for like other reasons, if, you're, if you think it's going to be lucrative long term, uh, it's, it's unlikely to provide good yield and it's going to be highly tied to whatever the trade, like the price of Bitcoin's trading at. So when it comes to these bigger companies making investments into Bitcoin, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, thing to keep in mind obviously is where these guys are, you know, locating their mining operations, right, and, and what their electricity cost is, and all the different variables they're taking to, into account. You know, this is no longer an individual, you know, game, right? You know, an individual can't go, uh, you know, mine on their own anymore, right? You need to have, you know, achieve scale, and I think that's what I, a lot of these companies are trying to do, right? And you know, with financing, is is help finance scale. You know, I've heard. For example, a company talking about taking mining equipment as collateral for, for loans. Um, so, for example, if you're mining, uh, you know a, a large number of Bitcoin, right? You may have an electricity bill of one hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a month that you have to pay, um, and, and may need some short-term cash if Bitcoin crashes to kind of pay those bills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being able to take you know equipment as collateral, I think is is quite an interesting. Uh, also, to be able to just finance the purchase of additional equipment, I think is 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 a pretty interesting development.
1: Yeah, it seems like it could be a cool way to get additional leverage.
0: And so, yeah, let's transition into, you know, what happened later, which was you moving. Well, I think there was something in between there, but but you eventually ended up at CryptoSlate uh, in more of a journalism role. Um, and so h- how did you first get involved with crypto journalism? How did you kind of make that switch? I was kind of
1: accidental. Uh, I was burnt out at a project management role, and they were mostly doing stuff on Hyperledger and IPFS. So I was a, I was, managing a software team out of Bangalore and I was living in Bangalore. So got burnt out there. And when I landed back in the United States, I had already been writing for some time for CryptoSlate on the side and my interest in mining kind of is what got me involved in crypto journalism. I was just talking about a lot of my findings in in mining on both like the accounting side, optimizations. And when mining was still hobby dominated, that attracted a lot of interest. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of accidental getting involved in journalism. I hit up on I hit a, a vein on this mining topic, and I kept getting deeper and deeper in covering different uh, different elements of the industry until uh, I was able to, I guess, call myself a crypto journalist. No, no formal training though as a journalist whatsoever.
0: You know, it's funny. I mean, it it you know, uh, you know John John Rice who proceed who who came before you at a. Uh, at Crypto Briefing is now the editor in chief of Coin Telegraph and a great friend of ours. He, um, same thing, no, no journalism experience. And, you know, I, I feel like I've seen that a few times, but I don't know. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, I mean, do you think journal journalism experience is, is, is still a pre- prerequisite, prerequisite from being a good journalist or, I mean, obviously if you say no, then you're shitting on yourself. So, I
1: mean,
0: but in terms of, in terms of your hiring and, and who else you're looking at, I mean, is that, is that something that you think is, uh. Is a requirement uh, when I actually comes to crypto
1: journalism. I think that uh, having a journalism background might actually be a negative for us because it, it usually means they don't have the technical or financial chops necessary to cover this industry in a way that's effective. Yeah, cool. no that 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 makes sense. Where I would say that journalism is a big help is for investigative journalism. Like, did you see that expose on Justin Sun recently on The Verge? Oh,
0: oh, you you already know I did. Come on, that was excellent. Anybody who hasn't seen it. Go type in Justin Sun Verge on uh, on Google and uh, and and it's worth the entire the entirety of the read.
1: Yeah, for a piece of content like that, I mean, it's only a few thousand words, but the amount of research and work and organization necessary to produce a piece of content like that—that's months of labor from like a well from a seasoned journalist to produce something of that quality. So when it comes to investigative journalism or trying to make claims about someone who's engaging in fraud or something illicit, I do actually think that a journalism background helps a lot because it's not easy. And, I've, been, and so, I've been covering nope. this story, working on this investigation on a separate story for about seven months. And it's this big investigative piece. I can't name too many names yet, but I can see why specialized training in journalism is necessary because of when, when you are dealing with questions of illegal activity, things do get a lot more complicated in terms of liability involved and also how much you need to support your claims before saying something. You can't just say like, ah, this is good or this is bad. If defamation is on the line, then you need to be a lot more careful and a lot more
0: thorough about the claims that you're making. So when is this, when is this, this piece coming out? Is there any, are are you getting closer? Yeah, I'm I'm aiming for the end of this year,
1: but I've been working on this for at least seven months now. So what? like yeah. like the verge piece it's when you do investigative journalism it can be a long and tedious
0: process well so so what are your so the, you know in my mind there's a few pieces of journalism you know over the years in crypto that really stand out one of the, fir- one, of the one of the biggest ones to me was i don't know if you remember the breaker mag piece on paid crypto media Oh yeah, Um, that came out a couple a couple years ago, and rest in peace, Breaker Mag. But but are there? I mean, what are some of the what are the some of the pieces of 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 investigative journalism or just journalism more broadly? You know, from others in this space that you've seen that have stood out to you?
1: Well, there's the other one from Breaker Mag, the crypto cruise one. Did you ever get a look at that?
0: The crypto cruise one? Yes, uh, yes, yes. That the Anthony Diorio cruise? Yeah, that one. Yes, I do remember that. I actually was supposed to go on that cruise and last minute uh bailed, but but yeah, they gave out like an Aston Martin or something on the ship and some other kind of nonsense. Well,
1: you could you could have been part of history then.
0: I know, I know. I missed out on crypto history. I, I I've also seen uh I think Tim Copeland at Decrypt has come out with some some uh you know, good luck. He did a, he did a pretty nice deep dive into uh CZ as well at some point this year yeah I uh, think and, and Tim Copeland has
1: some excellent pieces as well like he's definitely one of my the, the journalists that I look up to in in this industry like Tim and then there were some some of the earlier pieces out of the block like before they started paywalling content they did a few good investigative
0: pieces like one on our chain was was good and then the other one on the um, the blockchain terminal the blockchain terminal yeah. Yeah, that was a great piece. I remember that. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, no, you're t- totally spot on there. I agree on both of those. So, so you know, you you started at Crypto Slate. You know, can you kind of you know talk us through your roles there and what that turned into, and and how you en- how you ended up at Crypto Briefing? Yeah, sure.
1: So at CryptoSlate I was the editorial manager, but more or less, I was responsible for getting out managing their whole editorial process. So all the news that came out on CryptoSlate, I usually had, I had the last look at it. I was the final approval. And a good chunk of the content, I was also writing myself. So during that, the year I was working at CryptoSlate, I must have written over between 200 and 300 articles.
0: I read online that you've done over 500 total. <laughs>
1: yeah, 500 <laughs> articles. I, I kind of look back and I'm just like, wow, I really was in the trenches.
0: So what is your, your favorite article that you've ever written?
1: A lot of the articles that I've done on cryptocurrency mining, I find, find the most interesting, just personally, I, I they don't get huge hits. But one of the best moments was when uh, Charlie Lee shared one of my articles on game theory around cryptocurrency mining and why, like how, how the structure of certain arrangements in hash rate can lead to security vulnerabil- vulnerabilities. And I'll give you an example. Like if you're Ethereum, and there's an ethereum classic using the same algorithm and ethereum classic has 5% of a certain algorithm's total hash rate then ethereum classic is going to be very vulnerable to
0: 51% attacks in essence got it got it i think i think you went a little over my head there i'm definitely not in on the mining the uh, <laughs> you know all the all the intricacies of mining but yeah i mean speaking of ethereum classic and 51% attacks can you explain to us why Ethereum Classic had 351% attacks I think in a week or in a month I think it was in August and it was 51% attacked before I mean how do they how do they even how do you go about solving that problem I mean you, when you can just go on nice hash and you can you know they for a few solve thousand the problem bucks they
1: wanted to. The thing with Ethereum Classic is their community is very conservative about issuing changes to their initial vision because their whole premise to exist as a coin is that they're the unaltered version of Ethereum so if they add any sort of protections against mining, they're going away from that vision, and they're debating this right now, like within their their um, their proposals, to implement things like checkpoints and other like other precautions that would make
0: conducting fifty one percent attacks much harder. Got it. Got it. So it's it's a it's a it seems like that seems like a bad thing to be conservative about, though. I mean, if there's one thing to not be conservative about, to me, it's not being hacked. But, I yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I. It's it's I think it's kind of silly too like uh between you and I I think that Ethereum Classic is just on its way out. So I don't think it really has a, a reason for existing.
0: Right, right. And uh yeah, I mean I'd love to get it. Let's get let's get into that in a bit, you know, the what should exist, what shouldn't exist cuz I think that's a great question, but you know, what what is what is, you know, now you are the the managing editor at Crypto Briefing. So, you know, what does that mean and and what are your day-to-day responsibilities? Is that is that a very similar role to what you had at CryptoSlate?
1: Well, less so. So at CryptoSlate I was doing everything I-, I wore a lot of hats and I-, I did everything myself on the editorial side. And then Nate Whitehill, you're probably acquainted with him. He was yeah, basically Nate's a great guy. Building the entire technology stack. So he was just trying to build out a lot of their databases, like their people directory. Um, kind of like a crunch base Also
0: at- also shout out to Matt as well, if we're we're making some CryptoSlate shout outs.
1: Oh yeah. Matt 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 Blankard is also a legend. He's he's their uh He built out out a lot of their back-end infrastructure, so he is an exceptional programmer. So when it comes to crypto briefing, um, the big difference is I don't write nearly as much content as I used to, and now my right-hand man, Liam James Kelly, he is the editorial manager. He's the one who actually interacts with a lot of the content and the journalists on a day-to-day basis. So when it comes to what I do now, a lot of it's higher level, dealing with the business, costs. Um, subscriptions, building out the actual infrastructure. So if you go to cryptobriefing.com, I was responsible for designing a lot of the current layout and how things are structured right now. So it's a combination of product and marketing and advertising and HR rolled into one. So basically everything. Um, I mean it's a startup, so yeah, you're, you're probably acquainted
0: with this too. <laughs> I'm, I'm all i'm I'm all for it. i've I've played it. i've I put every hat on. So you know, given that you're part in everything, you know, I think this is you know, you know would be a good follow up is is you know, look, there is a lot of competition within the crypto media space, right? You have oh, everybody from from you know your your bigger players, like Cointelegraph Telegraph and Coindesk to your you know, your up and comers like Decrypt and, and uh, you know, The Block, which is focused more on enterprises to your, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, like, you know, factory farms. Uh, and I don't need to name names there, but you know, your publications that are just going out and just plowing out 75,000 technical analysis stories a day. Yep. Um, so h- how, how do you compete with other cryptocurrency uh, media companies in the space? And, and how do you differentiate crypto briefing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And something that when I first brought on, that was my main task to figure out. So the the issue with crypto media is that the barriers to entry are rather low. And it's, it can be complicated to get a differentiated product, because if everyone's offering news, then within an hour, people are just going to copy your content and put it on their own website. So it's, how are you going to make money if there's no way for you to monetize the content that you're putting out? So the, the different publications have solved this in different ways. CoinDesk did this by using their media content as a loss leader and then promoting their their in-person event, but uh, probably not the best time for in-person events right now, unfortunately. Cointelegraph went full throttle on the advertising model and they also have, like I, I suspect that they do investing as well. So um, investments plus advertising The block has their own subscription model for research. Decrypt, um, I haven't really figured out what they're doing for monetization, but the, the differentiator for crypto briefing is that we're the only crypto media company that actually offers financial recommendations. We'll go through like number 400, number 500 on CoinMarketCap and we'll issue that as a recommendation after sifting through dozens of different assets and we'll say, and better money on it, that this thing is going to go anywhere from three to 10 X in a year.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's, that's perfect segue. Cause that's exactly where I wanted to go with the majority of this, this, this uh, you know, podcast is, is into symmetry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what is symmetry uh, and what, and what is the sales pitch that you're making to the end user on why they should, you know, you know, sign up for it. And then I'd love to go into, you know, how you're identifying these coins and fundamentals and all that later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So symmetry is our retail, Is our product geared towards retail investors? And our pitch for that really is we want to level the playing field, symmetry, like the opposite of asymmetry, by giving people Uh, the insider look. I didn't know that. Yeah, insider look at cryptocurrency assets that a lot of the insiders have. And because of our relationships in the industry and the connections that like Han and Jay and the other members of the executive team have, we're able to actually go out and talk to these teams and figure out. Whether these people are full of crap or are they actually building a legitimate product with users and um, revenue. So those elements give us a big advantage. And rather than just hoarding those potential investments to ourselves, we wanted to build out a, a retail product to give people access to those investments first, because we thought that this would be a more scalable way to build a reputation and actually create a sustainable media company. Because without some other component like a paywall service or some other way to generate subscription revenue, if you depend just on ads, your media company is going to die or you're, you're going to have to be a winner-takes-all situation. You're going to have the coin telegraph and the coin desk, and then everyone else is just going to struggle to make make pennies on the dollar.
0: And so what does the end product look like to a user? Is it research reports? I mean, I know you had at one point coins on the move. Where you are giving actual price targets for coins, like what is what is the actual when when a user signs up, what are they looking at?
1: Yeah, so it's a combination of different products. We have the the heart of Symmetry is our Pick of the Month. So every month we issue a report on an asset that we think is highly promising that has potential to ten x within a year, and we look at we we analyze a few dozen different assets and we narrow it down to one asset every month that we think has the most potential given current market conditions to generate like good alpha. So that is what most people subscribe for. Then we have a few other products that are more for like medium or short, shorter term investing. So Coins on the Move is for swing traders. It offers um, insights into assets that we think are gonna perform well in the medium term. Like we're talking maybe one or two quarters. We have Pro BTC Trader, which is like our day trader product and we offer trade recommendations for Bitcoin and other big assets. And then finally, for longer term holds, for like the blue chip cryptos, we have our full digital asset reports, which is just looking at the blue chips, analyzing their fundamentals and seeing how they compare against each other. So this is things like Cardano, Ethereum, um, Kava, a lot of the DeFi coins. And we we give them an assessment and a grade, like a letter grade to say, this is how well we think this is going to perform within a given year.
0: And so a huge aspect... Of, of symmetry is identifying early assets with, and this is a quote that I found, strong fundamentals and outstanding upside uh, potential. So can you kind of go into how you guys define fundamentals for crypto and, and what makes a strong, ha- uh, what makes a coin, sorry, have strong fundamentals?
1: So strong fundamentals are things like, is their team competent? Do they have a legitimate uh, legitimate product? What is the use case for this? Like, is there an actual market need that's being addressed? Like general stuff that you'd get when you talk to a consultant, like does this business make sense from a coin perspective? And then you combine that with some element of token economics. So is the inflation rate reasonable? If you hold this, are you just gonna get diluted or, or are you actually gonna benefit from some sort of upside? Who are the early other early investors? Do we have big funds who are have some sort of propensity to dump after this coin lists on the open market? Or are these uh, investment funds that typically have a, of a track record of holding on to coins rather than selling them immediately. So there are a bunch of factors that go into this analysis. But the other most important factor is: does this project have some sort of medium-term catalyst? Like, are they going to get listed on a big exchange, or is there some other bigger trend in the industry like DeFi that's about to pop off that could potentially help this project so project h- go two three x?
0: How do you go about? You know, identifying something in the medium term, like is this coin going to get listed on this exchange in the future?
1: Oh, so one example is like, um, do you remember when Coinbase put out that big collection of assets that?
0: Yeah, they've done it a few times now. Yeah.
1: Right, right, right. So, for example, if they put out a collection like that, there's a high likelihood that something like Wire. Um, so, Andre used to actually be an early contributor to Crypto Briefing, the founder of Wiren. Um, they would. If they list a big collection of DeFi assets like that, then there's a a much stronger likelihood that something like Wyrin is going to get listed, which did happen. So those kinds of hints and like kind of the historical track record of what a big exchange has been doing can definitely can help a lot. But other things just like talking to the team and just trying to gather harder to get information from people on the ground. That's another big component of symmetry that other places do not offer. Like we will do a lot of the due diligence and investigative work around an asset before we recommend it to our subscribers.
0: And so you mentioned, you know, token economics and making sure that those make sense and, and making sure that there's kind of a use case for, for tokens. So can you give me an example of when token economics has made sense for a token and, and another example when it hasn't?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll give you a big example where it doesn't make sense is something like XRP.
0: If a project is too
1: greedy and has the majority of an ecosystem's token, then there is a large risk that whatever that centralized gatekeeper is exposed to either regulatory risk, they might get sued, they might get hit by an SEC charge for selling unregistered security, and they might just dump it on the people holding the token. So there are a bunch of risks associated with if the token concentration is too high. Now, on the flip side of that, you can also have token concentrations which are too low. So, for example, if you look at something like Litecoin, they had no very little like no little pre-mining and Litecoin Foundation has been struggling to fund their operations because they did not allocate a large enough proportion of the Litecoin supply to funding future development. And I suspect that that has led to like lackluster performance of Litecoin relative to Bitcoin. So there's definitely a balancing act like you need to make sure that you take enough of the supply that you can keep funding development and making sure that your token remains competitive. But at the same time, you can't take too much and be greedy and dilute either your token holders or create some sort of honeypot for regulators that can result in losses for everybody.
0: And so how does a token accrue value, right? When you're looking at, 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 at evaluating a token and, and, and finding some sort of value, right, or some sort of price target, like, like how, do you, how do you determine what the catalysts are for value accrual for, a, for an individual asset? So that's a
1: tricky question, because there's a lot of different types of tokens.
0: Um, when you have a product, for example,
1: versus something that is an investment in say a protocol versus an investment in something that looks a little bit more like a company, each one of those scenarios, you have to evaluate the token in a little bit of a different way. Like sometimes it's partially network effects where you see if this product gets a lot of traction, then the token economics should be good. And in other examples, if this company is making good revenue, like if you're an exchange token, then you need to make sure that their business makes sense. They're minimizing costs. They're trying to downsize their risks. Um, So it it really depends on how the token is used. And this is just a a broader issue with tokens in general, is that the definition of a token is kind of nebulous. It depends on how exactly it's being put into what kind of use case that token is filling.
0: And so when you first entered, uh, you know, into, you know, I guess it was more journalism, but I think you were doing some research as well, Uh, you know, when you are at CryptoSlate or at least, you know, starting to, you know, try to figure out what's going on with these assets. You know, what did your research process look like back then? Or even when you first started at, at, at Crypto Briefing, uh, you know, what types of metrics or data sets were you looking at, you know, kind of in the early days? And, and how does that compare to today? So my methodology has changed
1: a lot because previously when I was just a journalist, I wasn't really worried about what is the potential price impact of X, Y, and Z news. It was more just like, this is what happened. Here's how it should affect the price in one direction or another. It wasn't as nuanced as what Symmetry is trying to do now. So the main ways that my methodology has changed for the reporting process, I would say is I'm definitely looking at a lot more metrics now. Things like into the block have really changed kind of the data that lay people have access to and even more sophisticated users just by making, like putting together nice interfaces. So instead of having to go through the effort and like pull on chain data or try to interrogate just reams of tweets, you now have the ability to look at like, Oh, one dashboard, here's, here's what the sentiment score looks like today and incorporating a lot of these newer, these newer metrics into your analysis is going to help quite a bit in, in looking at the whole picture of how the price of an asset is going to move. So I'd say back in the crypto slate days, it was more focused on here's what's happening and just general reporting. And now, um, it's, it's more future, like forward looking here's, here's what the potential price impact would be. and, And corroborating that against several different metrics.
0: And so what percentage of crypto's movement do you think can be explained using data? And what other forces do you think are at play in this market? So it's tricky to explain a lot of movements with data, because if you're looking at a small cap asset,
1: it can be something arbitrary, like this fund, which had a huge position in it, they just decided to sell a big portion of it. So prices dropped. And that's not something you can forecast with data. Um, You can acknowledge that that risk exists by trying to look at who are the current holders are. But when the, the holder set of a particular asset is largely anonymous, it can be also very difficult to do. So I would say that when it comes to data, the biggest, the biggest element is probably going to be sentiment, because I still think that crypto is highly sentiment driven. And I also believe that crypto is still a risk on asset that's strongly correlated with the stock market. So this, this idea that Bitcoin is uncorrelated with the stock market, in, at least in a bear market, I don't think is accurate based upon what I've seen so there are limitations to data but I also think that it can give you a good picture of what to expect given different outcomes so for example for this presidential election if volatility increases and the markets markets drop then I think that cryptocurrency is also likely to drop in aggregate
0: yeah so I mean I, I guess you know I have a couple more questions to follow up in terms of you know projects and due diligence but would love to kind of get your you know, your opinion on macro why do you think that that crypto is still behaving in a risk-on manner. You know, a lot of people have talked about Bitcoin as being this risk-off asset and, you know, being a hedging asset. But it sounds like you kind of have a differing opinion there, and I think the data supports you a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. Who are the people who tend to be holding Bitcoin, and and the people who hold Bitcoin tend to be holding it in lieu of stocks or in addition to stocks, and they they perceive it again as something similar to an investment in a stock. It's not like gold where it has a well established track history and it it has a strong a a large track record and public perception supports this and also a much different demographic. Like older people are the ones who tend to be purchasing and investing in gold. They see it as something that is a hedge against like macro uncertainty. Bitcoin on the other hand, it's super high risk. It's volatile, the price can swing thousands of dollars in a single day. Like people see that and they they see that, wow, this is a risky investment and they're investing it because they see a lot of upside potential. So when there's a lot of upside potential, there's also a lot of downside potential as well. So I don't know, it seems like the characteristics are very closely in line with what people want when they invest in like Tesla with five X leverage. And you can also see this in like piercing court, like the correlation coefficients between Bitcoin and stocks and Bitcoin and gold. You can see that in a down market, cryptocurrency seems very closely correlated with the stock market.
0: And so, one thing is, you know, you mentioned that gold is kind of like an older generation. Uh, but what we've seen with a lot of research, I think it was maybe it was Charles Schwab that came out and said like the biggest or second or third biggest holding among uh, millennials was was GBTC, right? Which which gives mm-hmm. them exposure to Bitcoin. Um, do you think that this this you know correlation to equity markets and this risk on characteristic is something that that is going to exist in the long term? Um, for for all cryptocurrencies, do you think it depends if it's you know it's it's crypto more broadly or Bitcoin? Um, you know, because I think an opinion that a lot of people have is that you know uh, you know we're going to see this large transfer of wealth from an older to a younger generation, and you know uh, the 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 way that the older generation viewed gold potentially the younger generation will, will view Bitcoin. And I think that that's it's more of still of a hypothetical. I think, but you know, would love to kind of get your your opinion there. And, and we actually saw the other day. Bitcoin's 180-day rolling volatility actually hit the lowest point in over two years. Yeah. Um, So, so you know, we're starting. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see a little bit less volatility on Bitcoin, but certainly we're not seeing, you know, any sort of, you know, the opposite. I mean, we're seeing that Bitcoin is much more correlated with, you know, uh, you know, risk on markets than it is with with gold at this point.
1: So, to to go back to your question, are you asking whether I think that?
0: Do you think this is a long term thing? Like, do you think this will continue? Do you think Bitcoin will continue to behave a risk on and crypto more broadly? Do you think there'll be a separation between Bitcoin? Do you think Bitcoin could become risk off when the rest of crypto is Mm. risk on? Um, You know, what are your kind of, you know, five years out from now, 10 years out from now, 20 years out from now thoughts? So I think that. And Bitcoin. I know five years in the crypto market is 500 years in the regular <laughs> yeah, market, too. It's it so a I know, long time. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you to predict 20, 2746 right now. I understand that. So.
1: so the first contention I'll bring up is for Bitcoin to be uncorrelated with the stock market, I think that it needs to be a much bigger asset class in terms of like market capitalization, how much money is just sloshing around in the crypto market. Because right now, it's it's not all that much. We're talking a few hundred billion. Um, for For it to... Start being more insulated from like moves in the stock market. I, I would want to see like a number at least exceeding the trillions of dollars. So whether that happens is is totally based upon whether you think that Bitcoin is just going to become this this next this next thing that millennials have have confidence in. Um, and I think the the bull case is a lot easier to sell, but I'm skeptical of whether Bitcoin will really become this like alternative asset class or whether it's just going to become this mark, it's going to continue to remain this high risk, high risk alternative asset that uh, that's kind of just a curiosity. Like it definitely has utility, but I do suspect that banks or other financial institutions will probably co-opt Bitcoin. and It will kind of lose its original roots of, oh, this is money that anyone can use and anyone can be their own bank. But I still think that the the barriers to being your own bank, and in terms of like technical sophistication, might prevent a lot of people from actually using it that way, and instead, exchanges or other gatekeepers will once again insert themselves between the actual underlying and Bitcoin itself. So my do confidence you th- in do you Bitcoin, think Bitcoin being the continues. next big thing—I don't know.
0: And so, and so, if you're investing for the next ten years, and you and you you can choose to put your money in Bitcoin. You know, a diversified basket of altcoins, a particular altcoin, or just like the spy or gold, where's your money going?
1: So, I'm definitely not in the camp where I'm just like 100% Bitcoin because that's just absolutely ludicrous. The idea that Bitcoin does not have a chance to fail or can just keep trading sideways, I think, is completely preposterous. So, definitely not 100% Bitcoin. Though, I do think that there is. A significant amount of upside with investing in Bitcoin because if this bullish hypothesis becomes a reality, you might be seeing like 10x, 20x your money. So the upside is there, and I think that there. Are, I don't know. I don't think that it's necessarily priced in. There's no way to know for sure. But in terms of a high risk bet, if you'd put a few percent of your portfolio towards Bitcoin, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, when it comes to altcoins, I think investing in a basket of altcoins is also just a bad investment. There's no discrimination between which altcoins are good and which altcoins are bad. If you're willing to do your due diligence and research into each individual asset and do something like what symmetry is doing and select particular assets you th- that you think have longer term potential, that is something I'd subscribe to, but investing in a basket, probably not a great idea because 80, 90% of the companies in that basket are going to go, are going <laughs> to, are going to fail or are just like absolute scams. Um, So my money is in a combination of a few percent Bitcoin. The rest would probably be like right now, given the current conditions, I'm mostly in cash. Um, I'm kind of shaky on the stock market, but once things shake out with the election and depending on what volatility looks like, I'd probably move the rest of it back into stocks, stocks and and bonds, real estate, like a mixed portfolio with Bitcoin as a supplemental few percent.
0: And so back to kind of you know the altcoin things one thing that you mentioned earlier to us is 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 the fact that symmetry is picking out coin number 474 and 526 from the list of tokens on you know i guess coin gecko now i can't say coin market cap anymore <laughs> because apparently coin gecko is the coin gecko is the big big thing but so how are you finding those projects like what is the starting point of the impetus for researching individual assets
1: Oh, well, a lot of it's network based, so you kind of just watch what the other big funds are investing in and what they're looking at. So it's still like the world of crypto. It's not it's not very big. We're talking about the actual mover and, movers and shakers. It's. It's in the thousands, maybe in the ten, like maybe a little bit above 10,000 people, but there's not that many people who are making a lot of the major decisions. So it, once you're within that network, you can start seeing oh, this is an interesting asset or passing passing this, or this is a product that's just starting up and getting traction. And this fund is trying to invest in it. I want to get a piece of that. So it's still largely driven by word of mouth. And, and that's just kind of, I guess symmetry is kind of taking on a venture capital role, but giving retail retail investors access to that through our recommendations.
0: All right. So you, you go to Andreessen Horowitz's website, right? And you see that they've invested in in, you know, you know this new altcoin. W- w- what's the first thing that you do? Where's the first place you go, and what are the questions that you start asking?
1: So they wouldn't probably wouldn't put it on their website immediately. Like they try to keep it on the down low. You kind of just have to know a guy who knows a guy to figure right, out that right. they're investing in this asset. First off,
0: fair enough. So you find out through through the unbelievable network that Han and Jay have built because Han and Jay are so incredibly connected and know everything. So, so you find out through them, right, that X fund is invested in X asset, right? And you're like, all right, right w- w- why the hell is this company interested in this, this thing? Where, where do you go first? Where do you start doing your research? And, and what are the questions that you're asking?
1: So funny enough, like sometimes projects will actually come to us to ask for, for investments, but crypto briefing as a media company doesn't do any investments. Oftentimes they want access to like kind of the clout we have as a media brand or to to our ability to give recommendations, but that's that's not what we do. So we, we don't sell our recommendations to anyone and we don't invest before our subscribers do. Um, what we do do, however, is that once we have a project on our radar, they either come to us or it's word of mouth, we see that it's interesting, or maybe it's like on the bajillion telegram or Discord channels that we're we're combing through, we see something just popping off we'll go to their founding team and we'll just sit down and have a conversation and go through a bunch of our questions. Like we have a full methodology that we we run through that we've established for each of these digital assets that that we have. And we establish this first through like our full digital asset reports. If you go to Symmetry or for example, CoinGecko or um, CoinMarketCap, you can see our asset ratings on each of those websites. Like they will, they pull it through an API from Symmetry the grades that we've given each of these like blue cap.
0: And and just, just to help you show yourself for a second, if it's, it's symmetry is S I M E T R I.
1: Yes. So if you go to, I, (laughs) here, I'll pull it up. If you go to coin market cap and you go to say Bitcoin. Ooh,
0: they did a little redesign of their website. It looks nice.
1: It actually does look a lot better. I think that, they added a, a bunch of new features for like yield farming and, and products and stuff. Like, I'm really liking the new Coin Market Cap. Almost All about- right. So,
0: I went to Coin Market Cap, I went to ratings, and now on the bottom, I see symmetry now. Yeah,
1: that's that's the one. So, if you go through each, if you see each of those scores next to it, you have like the market, the product, the team. We use that same methodology every time that we evaluate a new potential like small capitalization asset. But on top of that, we also interview as many people from their team as we can. We just kind of put them through um, through the firing squad. Like we just try to ask them questions and poke holes and like what what their business plan is. What are their token economics? Why does this make sense? Like just general, like uh, a lot of the stuff that you would see a VC ask.
0: And so if you had to, you know, tell us what the three most important things were, and I'm not holding you to this and you know, there, this is not a quiz or anything by any, by any means, but like, what are the, what are the most important things? Like what, like, what is a make or break to you? What is like, if they didn't do this right, this thing is fucking worthless. Uh, is is their team real? Do they have a legitimate Like real product? human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah real yeah, human yeah.
1: beings. Because that best- was a,
0: that's been a problem, by the way, just to anybody listening who hasn't been in this space. There were so many times in 2017 and, and when, when, when these ICOs just had stock images of people. And, and just names on their website, and they just didn't exist. They didn't work for the company.
1: Or they were just taking real people and falsely attributing them to their team. Like, right. Like Ryan Reynolds or something, putting their picture on their, their founder team. Right, right, 100%. So, and,
0: and, I, and I think this was particularly the case for a lot of foreign ICOs, and you know, not naming particular countries, but uh, you know, there, 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 there were a few countries that were repeat awful offenders of, of this process.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we want to go in terms of like the first thing you want to look at a project is, is it legitimate? Are these people real? And if it's an anonymous founding team, like then you need to scrutinize the product and see, is there something here? Is there actually some sort of potential opportunity for this to solve a real, real world business problem?
0: And so for, for, you know, uh, anonymous founding teams, Uh, You know, a lot of these are in DeFi now, right? I think a lot of the more anonymous, you know, projects are are DeFi-based projects. How do you assess risk? Um, You know, in particular, smart contract risk. Because one of the things that we're seeing is we're seeing, you know, all these new, you know, tokens, whether it's, you know, sushi swap or hot dog or hamburger or cheese pizza or whatever the hell these things are called, right? And these things are popping up every day. And then everybody's, you know, locking, you know, two hundred million dollars into these different things. How do you even start looking into what the risks are in, in, in terms of security and in terms of hacks uh, with investing in any of these individual, you know, DeFi protocols?
1: So when you're dealing with a decentralized protocol, it can be very tricky to actually assess whether there is a security risk or not because one, there's not too many people who can actually audit a smart contract and figure out between all of these interactions, is this thing gonna blow up? It is really hard to tell. And second, beyond the, the security risk of, of it blowing up, like there's always the risk that the people who are working on it just stop. They, they might say like you have this anonymous founder, they might just disappear or they might just run off with the money, kind of like the sushi swap, swap uh, fiasco. So there are a bunch of risks involved with it, but that's just kind of the nature of the game. When you have an asset that has the potential to go fifty, hundred X, there is also a very, there is also a non-trivial chance that you just lose your shirt.
0: And so, how do you, you know, I mean, when you're doing a report, like, how do you assess that risk, though? Like, like what, what, what are the kinds of things that you're, you're, you're able to come up with? Because obviously, it's very difficult. To you know, start to dive in depth and, and assess the smart contract risk, and assess the risk of you know a founding team walking away or a guy just like you know just leaving with the money, like sushi swap. I mean, do you think the risks to DeFi protocols kind of just just you know are the same across the board? And just anybody who's more established and whose you know smart contract code has been audited by you know a number of people in the in the industry are just you know in a in a better place. Like, how do you even assess that?
1: I think the best way to assess is just straight up time. How long has this protocol been around without experiencing a major, a major hack or a major incident? And that's one of the things that Symmetry does is that it doesn't invest in seed round, um, seed round level projects. Like if we're doing super high risk investments, that's not something that we'd give to our subscribers. Usually, it's something that has to have been around for a year, have a few million in terms of actual market capitalization, have a little bit of trading volume already, maybe listing on one or two smaller exchanges, but it has to have some sort of track record. And just existing and having people use whatever product that they have seems to be the best way to actually test whether something is secure or not.
0: And so two, two final uh, questions for you. The first is, what worries you most about crypto? What do you think the biggest risks are for the space?
1: I think the biggest risk is something like Bitcoin, which is, seems to be what's driving a lot of the actual growth in this industry. Like if Bitcoin prices are high, the overall the cryptocurrency industry is growing. If prices are low, it's just kind of stagnating and not a lot of interest is coming into the space. So the biggest risk, in my opinion, is either Bitcoin getting co-opted by banks or some other larger financial institution or... Bitcoin just continuing to trade sideways and just remaining some obscure like hobbyist asset.
0: And so what has you most excited about crypto?
1: Well, if, if uh, what the maximalists say are, is true and it actually comes to fruition, like a new financial system is pretty exciting, though I think that's a little bit far-fetched when it comes to like replacing the dollar. But what I will say is that just having some sort of alternative, putting pressure on regulators and on different financial institutions just to improve their products and services so that there isn't just this monopoly on sending value. Just this one ability, ability alone to actually conduct transactions that may not necessarily be legal, but they still have real economic value and, and overall they could be beneficial to society like these DeFi protocols. Although right now they're extremely volatile and it looks like they could blow up anyone anyone's face, the potential to actually offer people collateralized loans or to make transactions halfway across the world for cents, like a few cents on the dollar for sending millions of dollars worth of value. That's truly amazing. And that's something that we should all be excited
0: about. And so if you could join any company in crypto as an advisor, who would it be and why?
1: Uh crypto company specific?
0: Or anybody touching crypto. So it can be somebody who is, you know, it could be like a PayPal who, you know, is, you know, could potentially go into, you know, crypto, you know, stablecoin payments. It could be uh, a token that you guys have audited. It could be, you know, uh, you know, an- anything, anybody who's touching crypto.
1: It's funny that you say PayPal because that was, that, that's the first company that comes to mind because their payment, their actual service is atrocious. Like if you actually tried to use PayPal, it is just a complete headache. Horrible user experience, bad user interfaces, money gets held up. Like PayPal is notorious just for being bad overall. So I think if anyone needs an advisor on how to do crypto right, it would be PayPal.
0: So PayPal, if you're uh, if you're listening to this, you know uh, <laughs> Mitchell's Mitchell's uh, Twitter and LinkedIn will be in the description. So uh, yeah. So so th- thanks, a lot, Mitchell, and, and why don't you why don't you let uh, you know all of our listeners, but most importantly, PayPal know where they can. Uh, contact you find out more about you find out more about uh, crypto briefing and, and symmetry
1: yeah i would encourage everyone who's listening to go to cryptobriefing.com. that is crypto briefing no spaces.com. dot com and you can find me in the in the author pages there
0: great well thank you so much uh really appreciate all of all of the insight and you know you know funny you a lot of the things that you've said from, you know, a mission and supply rate to, you know, talking to teams, like you got to a lot of my follow-up questions, which you hadn't even seen before, before I even wrote them. So really appreciate all of your insight. I mean, I think you guys are asking a lot of the right questions and, you know, I think it's, I think it's, you know, guys like you um, and, and the rest of the industry. I, I mean, I think these are the questions that we need to start asking to, to start getting better answers. So really appreciate your time.
1: No, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, Joshua.
0: Cool. Thank you.